Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure we're ready to focus and study the word and get all the cobwebs out of our minds and distractions and everything else and get ready to study the word. Let's pray. Father, your scripture reminds us that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Father, we are indeed mindful that every day, every moment, you are intimately involved in each of our lives, and you've given us your word to strengthen us, to encourage us, and that the biggest challenge we have is just to get our eyes off of the uh, finite circumstances and frame of reference we have from our own experience and our own lives and our own culture to think about life in terms of your perspective and and to think about what you're doing in our own lives and our own spiritual growth and the challenges we face, as well as to think about everything in life from the from the grid of Scripture, not from the grid of experience or autonomous reason. So as we study these things tonight, help us to think through them, think biblically, think objectively. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Hebrews 7, we have come down to the last three verses in the chapter, which bring up a very interesting theological debate that has gone on uh, down through the centuries. Those last three verses of, of Hebrews 7, uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we are... Primarily, we ought to look at just uh, 8, 9, and 10. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And here's the key verse, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father, that would be Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Now, the issue here is how do we understand this phrase, he was still in the loins of his father Abraham. In one sense, this is taken by a lot of people rather literally that through the progenitor, all of the descendants are literally, fully, actually within them uh, seminally, that's the position that's taught, that's, uh, that's the correct term for it, is seminalism. There's two, two views that, that theologians have developed for understanding the relationship of members of the human race to Abraham. One is a seminal relationship, uh, which is purely physical. The other is federal, that Adam is our federal head. Those two positions we're not getting into yet. 
because they are also related to two other positions. One is called creationism and the other traditionism, and that has to do with the origin of the soul. And these two two issues and four positions are all related. Now, down through the ages, theologians have tended to sort of choose sides. It's one or the other. I am of the opinion, because there's a lot of scripture that you can go to to support both, that in some senses, they're all true. And we're going to kind of work through that in the next few weeks as we go through this to try to understand the ways in which the seminal position is true, the ways in which the federal position is true, the ways in which the creationist position is true, and the ways in which the traditionist position. And the bottom line is that you have certain aspects of the human being that are passed down physically through procreation. And you have other aspects which are immaterial. And the soul is immaterial. And it's really important to understand the distinction here as well as the influence of external philosophy on this whole debate because that does have a particular and significant role. And we'll get into that maybe uh, maybe a little bit tonight. So let's just start off where we were last time to pick up the definitions that there's two views on the origin of the, of the soul. As a matter of fact... I brought with me tonight the January-February 2007 issue of Israel, My Glory. And in the January-February issue, and then again in the March-April issue, there's a two, uh, two parts, actually, of a series on the morality of God under the heading, The Foundations of... The Faith by Dr. Ronald Showers. Dr. Showers has his doctorate from Dallas Seminary. I have read a number of his books over the years, and they are very well done. He is a, a very meticulous uh, researcher, thinker, and his theology is uh, very sound in, in most areas. And he began in the January-February edition in part, uh, uh, part nine of this series on this great controversy on the origin of of the soul, and it's just, it's a two-page article on pages 36 and 37, and he gives an introduction, as I did last time, I talked about how this debate as to the origin of the soul relates to and is uh, usually correlated to the abortion controversy. He takes the first page to deal with that. Then he takes... Uh, and each page has three columns, as you can maybe see. Those of you who don't have your bifocals tuned wrong can't see that. But it's three columns. He takes a one and two-thirds columns to introduce the issue of the origin of the soul and that first theory I dealt with last week very briefly on the preexistence theory of the soul, which really comes out of a of a Greek philosophical background, mostly a Platonic background, a view that's consistent with reincarnation. And it did have uh, a slight uh, acceptance among some in the early church, but it was uh, negligible. Then he gave a basically one column because it's about oh, 70% of one column and 40% of another column. 
to the creation the creationist theory. And I felt when I read that that he just did not do, he didn't understand the theory in its best articulation, and he didn't present it honestly and accurately. He didn't he he ignored a tremendous amount of data that has been uh, utilized over the centuries. And I find this to be typical of conservative evangelicals ever since Roe v. Wade in 1973. There were, at the time of Roe v. Wade, I know that Bruce Waltke, who was the chairman of the Old Testament Department of Dallas Seminary, did a flip-flop. Well, Bruce has done flip-flops on I don't know how many years of theology in the last 40 years, but he um, he was dispensational back then. He's... He's covenant reformed now, and I mean, he's just changed a lot of positions. He's a great grammarian, but, well, he's not the best theologian. And um, anyhow, um, there were a lot of theologians that did that. There were a lot of, a lot of people who did that in the, in the, uh, between the 60s and the 70s because they assumed that a creationist position on the origin of the soul, that is, that God directly and directly creates and simultaneously imparts a soul to each baby at birth, and that comes through that initial breath. There were a lot of a lot of theologians took that and thought that that automatically meant that uh, abortion was legitimate. They knew that historically the church had always been uh, against abortion, despite the position, but they just automatically assume that. And still today, you'll run into people, uh, many who think that that's an automatic, necessary conclusion from a creationist position. It is not an automatic, uh, necessary conclusion. In fact, I think it's an, it's an inconsistent conclusion from a creationist position. The creationist position, I think, is what the scriptures clearly teach. But to go to the next step, to say that that means that uh, all abortion is okay is a total leap because of the fact that it's uh, other aspects of Scripture, and we'll get into that as we go through this. But I just want to point that out. He does a good job of pointing out the three basic uh, questions that have to be addressed if you're going to handle uh, or present a consistent view of, of the creationist position. He writes... Uh, first, it does not explain the biblical teaching that all human beings sinned in Adam. Second, he says, and we'll deal with each of these, the creation theory does not explain the sinful nature of all human beings from the time of their conception. It does. It's been clearly articulated by numerous theologians. He doesn't like it, but that doesn't mean it's not right. Third, the creation theory finds it difficult to explain the fact that children often inherit the intellect and character of their parents. Well, that's explained also. And we'll deal with each one of those. But that's, that's, uh, I, I just found it odd that he, when you get into the next issue, he uses all six columns and th- three pages to present the tradition view. And he only presents basically a column to present the creationist view. And 90% of that is the flaws that he sees with the, with the view. So he doesn't do a, an adequate job of presenting it. Well, we use the two key terms, traditionism and creationism, and we'll review them again for you. Traditionism is from the Latin word tra- uh, traducere, which means to transfer. And it is the view in theology that teaches that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. Actually, 
I shouldn't have immaterial soul there, even though later theologians up into the Reformation period into the present would try to treat the soul immaterially, the reality is that this view was originated by Tertullian in the 2nd century, 2nd to 3rd century, and Tertullian understood the soul to be material. And so the, one of the major weaknesses with the tradition view, which has not been explained, is that how does the immaterial get transferred by the material? Uh, that is just not, not particularly dealt with, not, along with a number of other important uh, scriptural exegetical issues which we'll deal with. The other view, which goes back equally as far, in fact, it was the view that was there when Tertullian introduced the tradition theory, and that was the creationist view that taught that the uh, body was generated physically. The physical body is generated physically through the physical act of procreation, but for, uh, the soul is of each person is created directly by God, and is um, I didn't fix that slide, did I, Bruce? Uh, is created directly by God and is imparted simultaneously at the birth of each baby, and is indicated by. Uh, taking breath. So this is held by numerous people, Jerome, who translated the Vulgate, and Thomas Aquinas, who is considered the angelic doctor. He's the theologian for the Roman Catholic Church coming out of the Middle Ages, uh, John Calvin, Charles Hodge, a contemporary Reformed theologian, Louis Burkhoff, all held to a creationist view. These are not intellectual lightweights, by the way, or uh, theological lightweights. They are very uh, adept at what, they, what they've presented. Uh, Aquinas, in fact, said the traditionism was heresy to think that the soul is transmitted through the semen. Direct quote. So how do we understand this? We have to build our case slowly, gradually from Scripture, not jump to uh, c- conclusions that aren't in evidence at the beginning. So let's just take it very cautiously and slowly as we go through this. First off, we have to start with the creation of man, the original formation, which takes place in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. There we read that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. This would be the chemicals in the soil. He, he takes the earth and he, he begins to form man from the, from the earth. Now, that always reminds me of one of my favorite, favorite little stories about some Evolutionists who finally got to the point where they could create life in the laboratory. And so they said, well, we, we don't need God anymore. We have proven that God is unnecessary, so we're just not going we're just, we're just to go tell God he's, he's unnecessary and he's worthless and, and we can do it all ourselves and we don't need him. So they challenged God, and God came down and said, okay, well, I'll take up your challenge. He said, we'll see what you can do. We'll each have, we'll have a contest, and you can go first. I'll be a gentleman. You go first and you create life. And so the scientist said, okay, well, that sounds fine. I appreciate the opportunity. And so he leaned over and he picked up some dirt, and God said, no, 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 you have to create your own dirt. God originally created the chemicals of the soil. Remember that? So it is from the chemicals of the soil now that God is going to form the physical body of man. Now, This is why this whole issue of Platonism 
comes into play is because, and I didn't pull the slide over, we had a slide on this a few weeks ago, and I'll just duplicate it up here using this. Is it turned on? You sure? It's not showing up over there. It's not turned on. See, every time I want to use it, it's not turned on. We'll go three weeks, I won't touch it, and then I want it, and nobody turns it on. Okay, come on, Jack, turn it on, and then I'll just talk. The problem that you have that comes out of the influence of Platonism is this issue between matter and the immaterial, or as uh, Plato put it, between the ideas and the forms. See, if I figure out... Okay, see, now I know how to do that. Okay, so, and he had his great cave illustration, that everybody is in a cave. And you remember when you were kids and you'd have a real bright light or somebody would hold up a flashlight and you'd turn the lights off in your bedroom and you'd hold up your fingers and you'd make a shadow image of a dog or a rabbit or something like that. And that would go up on the wall. Well, Plato's view of knowledge was that all you and I ever see are the shadows on the wall. That's it. We don't see the thing that actually makes the image. That is what he would call the form. Okay. The form or the ideal. And that's up, up in, that's not in the physical creation. Down here, in a lower story, see he has this dichotomy in the way he views reality. Down below, what you have is uh, matter. I'm going to put that in lowercase. And the form or the ideal is pure, and it is good. But matter is inherently evil. And so everything that is a real value has to do with the, the pure, the good, the form, the ideal. And this is where you have the realm of spirit. And down here, of course, is where you have the realm of bodies. And his view, only the philosophers ever got enough information to come up out of the cave and see ultimate reality, the ideas, the forms. Well, this came over into the early church. And up here, this was changed to um, a terminology. This was called grace. This is the realm where God operates. And down below, it's matter or nature. Now, as Christians, they knew that, that creation itself wasn't evil. But it wasn't important. And when you get into the effect of Neoplatonism on Christianity, they dump the idea that it's evil, but it's just not important. What's really important is what goes on up here in the realm of spirit and soul. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here because I think everybody would answer this question the same way, but most of us have heard people teach about the soul and say the soul is the real you, right? The soul is the real you. How platonic. The body isn't important. Do you hear that? If the soul is a real you, the body is just irrelevant. It's just dirt, dust, chemicals. It's not significant. That is 
purely a Neoplatonic idea of life. The soul, here's a principle. The soul, the body is just as important as the soul. We studied this earlier in Hebrews when Jesus Christ says to the Father, a body you have prepared for me. Now think about this a little bit. God the Father is sitting there, let's say a day or two before Genesis 2-7. He's just sitting there up on his throne, got his head down in his hand like the thinker. I'm being a little anthropocentric here, or a little uh, anthropomorphic. And he's thinking about this. He says, hmm, see, one day I am going to have to take my essence, that is spirit, in terms of the second person of the Trinity, and I'm going to have to get all scrunched down and put myself into this body of this creature I'm about to create. So I have to design a physical body that is the best expression possible that I can have to express all that I am in my infinite being and as a, as a spirit. So he doesn't just come up with some idea and say, oh, bipedal hominoid, what a great idea, let's give that a shot. I mean, this is well thought out. God is saying of all the possible ways in which we can create this body, and just think about some of the different ideas that humans have come up with. Think about the, that, that famous bar scene in the first Star Wars movie that had all those different creatures in there, or some of the uh, Star Trek shows where they have all the different Klingons and Romulans and all these other different creatures and the, the, what were the tribits or whatever they were. You got all these different bodies, all these different options, and God and His infinite omniscience would know all the variables. And so He says, I've got to pick a finite physical body that is going to be the home for the second person of the Trinity who is, whose job it is to reveal me and to display who I am within this physical body. So this physical body is not an afterthought. It's not something that's just a, 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 a home for the soul. It is as important and as significant as the soul. There is no time when your soul doesn't operate without the bo- a body. It's got a physical body now. Based on Luke 16, there's going to be some sort of interim body between now and the future. Otherwise, how is the soul going to see? How is the soul going to hear? At physical death, when the soul is separated from the physical body, how is the soul going to hear, see, experience anything? The soul has to have a physical body in order to receive any sensory data, seeing, hearing, uh, tasting, anything. It has to come through a physical body. So a physical body is just as important, and that's what was missing from a tremendous amount of, of theology in the Middle Ages because they, they tended to denigrate the significance of anything physical due to this influence of Neoplatonic thought. And it denigrated marriage, it denigrated sex, it denigrates uh, uh, food and pleasure and all these other things. That's why the people who were the real spiritual people were the monks. 
The monastics who are operating up here where they're living off in their little monastic community where all the emphasis is on spirit and soul development and we're just, we're not going to eat a whole lot and we're not going to uh, drink a whole lot, although they did develop some very fine beers in the, uh, in the Middle Ages in the monasteries. In fact, the, the uh, current issue of Christian history is, de- is devoted to monastic spirituality, which is a whole other rabbit trail I could go down, and is, is coming in gangbusters. Let me just get off on this a minute. If you haven't noticed this, the trend for the last 20 years among evangelicals has been to go back to a Middle Ages, Roman Catholic, contemplative form of spirituality, aesthetic, uh, I mean, asceticism, uh, monasticism, going back. In fact, the, among the, um, they don't call them novitiates because that would have to be someone who is becoming uh, a Benedictine monk, but they have, so, uh, according to this issue in Christian history, they have, uh, you know, lay people who can associate themselves with a, with a monastery. And a large number of people who are associating, a large percentage, I don't mean like 1 or 2%, probably 10 or 15%, of the people who are associating with uh, monasteries today are Protestants. We're on our way back to Rome, folks. In fact, this morning, and I haven't had time to go back and investigate the whole thing, I got an email from uh, Charlie Clough. And it was a forward from an email from Tommy Ice. We, we just all spent a lot of time together. And Char- Tommy was writing this email to Charlie and saying, I know that you like to read Charles Colson. Many of you have heard Charlie reference Char- Charles Colson. Chuck Colson uh, well, no, no, was a lawyer. He was in the uh, Nixon White House, was guilty of... Uh, of uh, various crimes with the Watergate, was sent to prison, trusted Christ as his Savior, and since then developed his, this huge national uh, prison ministry. And he's written a number of books, and he has a number of, of valuable insights. also has a number of flaws. Well, it turns out that uh, Chuck Colson has been promoting the writings of a man named Henry Nguyen, I think is how you pronounce it, N-O-U-W-E-N. Henry Nguyen, and he is one of these contemporary contemplative mystic types, and he uh, is also promotes the work, Henry Nguyen does, also promotes the works of an earlier writer named Thomas Merton, who was into this real New Agey kind of mystical spirituality. This is just coming on uh, big time today. Now, let me connect some of these dots for you. There's another big name today that is promoting these same two people, Henry Nguyen and Thomas Merton. And that's uh, Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Life and the Purpose Driven Church because we're going to have a mystic-driven spiritual life. And see, that connects to the core things we were studying the last several weeks and Sunday morning on worship and evaluating the claims of the contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian worship movement is that their core understanding of worship is subjectivity. It is a certain mindset. And so the music and the words are designed to get you into a certain mindset. So we have to have these little praise courses because that helps get you into this particular mindset. And that mindset is one that is 
uh, has affinity with the kind of mindset that is defined as worshipful and spiritual in this contemplative spirituality movement that goes back to the medieval mystics and ascetics and the, the pillar saints and, and all of this other stuff that went on in the Middle Ages. And it just, we're, we're going back to Rome, folks, in a, in a, in a big way. So you need to be aware of how these things connect. Worship is not defined by a subjective mental attitude or mental state of some sort of, of, uh, sort of, uh, ethereal, lightweight, uh, happy mentality. Uh, when Jesus was angry at the money changers in the temple and he threw them out, he was worshiping God. Now, when they can factor that into their definition of Sunday morning worship, they might be getting somewhere biblically, but most of them don't do that. That, that just jars, that, that, that violates their whole concept of love and feel good and, and let's just, just, just be all, all emotional here. But see, all this goes back to these horrible ideas that came into the early church through, uh, through Platonic thought. And it de-emphasizes the physical, the material, and nature. And we saw that all the way through the Middle Ages, how it impacted their art and how it impacted music. In art, it was two-dimensional. It was tended to present people in an ideal manner. The pictures of people didn't look like people. You couldn't identify them as individuals. Once you had a shift towards the later Middle Ages, and that wasn't due to getting back to the Bible. It was due to getting back to Aristotle. When they got back to Aristotle, Aristotle emphasized the particulars. It was Plato that emphasized the universals or the ideals. So how does this affect this? Well, what, the way it affected the whole idea of the origin of the soul and our understanding of the soul and the formation of the body is it puts this formation of the body of man from the dust of the ground well, that's just kind of secondary. He, God's just doing that to get to the really important part of creating the soul. And what I'm telling you is, is they're both important. You never have souls, human souls, function without some kind of body. When you get into Luke, Luke 16, well, let's just go there. Well, what's interesting is on almost all of these passages, there have been so many changes and challenges and uh, things in recent years that it just it it, act, it boggles my mind compared to what I was taught and what I have concluded down through the uh, last thirty years or so since I was in in seminary. Luke chapter sixteen, verse nineteen. Now there was a certain rich man; he's unnamed. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day, and a certain poor man named Lazarus. Now, here's the first point. It starts like it might be a parable. And there's a lot of people today who will tell you this is a parable. But parables don't name the individuals in them. Once they start getting named, they're talking about real people. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. You had a certain man, and he had two sons. Nobody's got a name. They're, they're parables. This is not a parable. This is treated as a real event that is taking place outside the range of our empirical faculties. There's a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. 
who used to lie outside of his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Even the dogs were coming and licking his sore. Just a pathetic sight of this homeless guy outside of the rich man's house. Now, it came about in verse 22 that the poor man dies, Lazarus dies. He's carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And there's a doctrine there that the angels come and and escort our soul into the presence of God. Abraham's bosom was also paradise. This is the place where uh, believers before Christ died on the cross, where Old Testament saints went in sort of a, a holding place until sin was actually paid for and the opening to heaven uh, was, was made by Christ's death on the cross. It came about that the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, now these are, throughout the Old Testament, these are real places. So this isn't just parabolic. In Hades, he, meaning the rich man, being in torment, you're not in torment Torment if there's not some sort of, of nervous system that can handle, that can telegraph pain to the soul. He is in torment, and he saw there has to be some sort of faculty for seeing. It can't be just some disembodied soul like Casper the ghost floating through the air or some of those, whatever they were, protoplasmic things in the uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, there is a, uh, there's a, a, some sort of interim body there. It might not be a phys- not, might not be like our physical material body that we have today, but it's some sort of of a body. Uh, he sees Abraham far away and he cries out, gotta have a mouth and a tongue to cry out. And says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the what? The tip of his finger. He's just a disembodied soul. He has no finger to dip. Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. So that tells us that both the unbeliever, the rich guy, and Lazarus have some sort of body. They're not just disembodied souls. And there's some area in which they feel pleasure and pain. And the rich man is, is feeling tremendous amount of heat type of pain. And he desperately wants to be cooled off. He wants his water dropped on the on his tongue. And then um, Abraham says that, of course, this isn't going to work. And the great point of this is that uh, Ab- uh, the rich man wants Lazarus to go back to his brothers and tell them what's going to happen to them. Because because uh, he if he rose from the dead and went back and told them about all that happened and gave them a message from me then they would believe. And Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe them, they won't believe Lazarus. Now that is a fabulous passage because what that is saying is the testimony of the word of God is equal to, if not superior to, any empirical or rational data you can come up with to try to convince somebody of the truth of Scripture. The Scripture is self-authenticating, and it is the final authority. If they won't believe the Scripture, they won't believe anything else. Okay, the point that we're getting out of all of this is that there is a there's no time when there's not some sort of 
body to house the soul. The idea that bodies are insignificant, secondary, not important, and that the real you is your soul comes out of an influence of Platonism and Neoplatonism on Christianity. Both are important. God spends a tremendous amount of time talking about this. He, Jesus says, a body you prepared for me. So the body's important. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now the word there for formed is the Hebrew word yatsar, which means to shape or mold as a potter shapes, uh, shapes clay into uh, some sort of instrument. So the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now what's interesting here is that uh, the, the word for breath is this word, neshama. Neshama, God breathed racha into the, his nostrils, uh, the breath of life, and man became a living soul at that particular point. Now, I'll come back and talk about some of those other terms later on, but right now I want to talk about the importance of breath because it is when God breathes into the physical body that the physical body comes alive, and that's when you have the soul, the immaterial part of man, introduced into the the physical body. It's at that point that it becomes a genuine, living, fully human uh, person. But let's just take an example here. If you were to come up before God breathed into Adam's body and you were to take a machete and chop off the head, would you be guilty of murder? No, because the soul's not there yet. Is that the right thing to do? No, that's not the right thing to do. Because that's the purpose of this is to create a human being who's going to be in the image and likeness of God. And the body is just as much a part, a significant part of what is being developed as the soul. They haven't come together yet to be a full human being but they are both important. Now, it's, it's vital for us to understand some things about just when uh, the Bible talks about life beginning. I've entitled this lesson, Biblical Parameters of Life, because in the process of doing some research on this, I've gone back through this whole topic numerous times over the last 20 years and changed my views considerably over time. Uh, there are some things that are not pointed out by just about anybody. Uh, not that I'm patting myself on the back, but it just seems like in so many areas we just jump to comfortable conclusions without evaluating all the data. Job 121. Job, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, there's a lot about this verse we could go into, but the main thing we want to look at is that Job recognizes that the Lord is the one who gives him life, that life includes his physical life as well as his soul life, both the body and the soul. When he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, there's a uh, technical phrase there in the Hebrew, that we'll look at in just a minute. 
But he says, naked I came from the womb, and the emphasis is not on naked I arrived in the womb. He's, I want you to pay attention to this, because this is one of the most important things that, that you'll find, and I don't know that it's in print anywhere. And that is that the Bible never, ever puts the parameters of life at conception and death. Now, I'm going to document that later on, but watch this. The Bible always puts the parameters between birth and death. It never, ever, the vocabulary is there in the Hebrew, but it never puts the parameters at birth. I mean, at conception. Not once. And this is just one place you see that. Job says, naked I came. It's talking about the, the beginning of life is at birth. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. See, when he says the Lord gave, that's in parallelism to what he has just said in the previous, uh, previous phrase. So it is the Lord that is behind and is the one who is indirectly involved in that birth process and in the death process. So I will say about Job 121 right now, but we will come back to it a little later on. Uh, the important phrase that we have here is one that shows up a little later on, and I'll talk about it a little later on. It's from my mother's womb. The word for womb in the Hebrew is beten. The preposition is min, and when it comes before a, a, a consonant, it drops the n, so it would be just me beten. And it just means from the womb. Now, we talked about this preposition. It works the same way in Hebrew. Sometimes the word from is, is for example, I could say, well, I came from, I moved back to Houston from Connecticut. Now, if I talk about it that way, then, then it it's clearly says that I was in Connecticut. But when Jesus prays to, for the disciples to be kept from the evil one, there's no indication that they're ever in the evil one. Okay? So it has these two different nuances. And that becomes important in a study we did not that long ago on Sunday morning in another passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. So why don't you turn over there? Now, I'm not going to go through a detailed exegesis of this verse. The causal clause at the beginning of verse 10 belongs to verse 9. There's technical, syntactical reasons for that. Unfortunately, the verse was divided here, but the standard practice in Greek is not to begin a sentence with because. If you want to get the details of that, go back and listen to the tape where I went through it in detail. So the, the sentence actually begins, I will also, in addition to other things, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The hour of testing is a technical term here for the tribulation. Keeping you from the hour of testing is the Greek preposition ek, which is parallel to the Hebrew preposition men. And it is clear that that means that they're never in the hour of testing. They're kept from ever going into it. So if we were to diagram this in a um, in a chart, we would do it something like this. Sometimes 
from is inside the circle, as in the phrase, I moved here from Connecticut. But in most cases, Jeff Townsend documents this in a totally unrelated subject to the one we're studying when he wrote an article in, in uh, Bibliotheca Sacra back in the early 80s on Revelation 3.10 that the vast majority of uses in the New Testament from is not ever entering into, doesn't involve being in this place. It's talking about exiting or being outside of it. And the starting point is outside of the circle. Now, the reason this is important is this phrase that I'm looking at, mibetan, is a Hebrew idiom for birth. In fact, I did a search through Lagos on the English phrase from birth through the New American Standard, came up with about nine hits. And in the Old Testament, every time you have the phrase that's translated into English from birth, it's always either mibetan or miret. Rechem, which is the parallel uh, term. It's a synonym for the womb as well, and we'll get into that in a minute. So this phrase, coming from my mother's womb, is consistently treated by translators as an idiom for from birth. It doesn't mean inside the womb. It means from the time of birth. So Job is saying, naked I came uh, from birth. And naked I will return. So he's, he's focusing on birth and death as the parameters of life. In Job 33, verse 4, Job says, The Spirit of God has made me. And this is not the technical word bara. Now, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of these three different Hebrew words for create. Bara, asa, and yatser. I've already talked about yatser. Bara is the word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. The unique thing about bara is the only person who baras anything is God. He, God is the only subject of that verb anywhere in Scripture. So only God can create bara. And thus we see as a secondary meaning, not the core meaning, but as a secondary meaning, ex nihilo creation in some places. So here when Job says the Spirit of God has made me, this is a more uh, generic term and could be implies some other things. And then in parallelism, it says, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. See, the word for spirit there is ruach. That's a word that we have for breath back in, uh, also back in Genesis. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So what Job is saying here is it's not just Adam. See, that's what the traditionists will argue is that, well, when you go to Genesis 2-7, that's just how it got started. That's the only time there's this, this, this breathing that, of God that creates life or imparts the soul. But Job says that too. Isaiah is going to say that as well. There's numerous passages that say that. So Job says, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So life, full life is related to uh, breathing, which begins at birth. Ecclesiastes 12.7 is another crucial passage uh, to look at here. Then the writer of Ecclesiastes says, then at the time of death, the dust 
will return to the earth as it was. That is, the physical body decomposes. And the spirit, ruach, see, the the word for for spirit in the Hebrew is ruach, for Holy Spirit, for wind, for breath. It has a variety of meanings, just like pneuma in the New Testament. And it can mean breath, but it also refers to, in this context, it has to refer to the immaterial part of man. You've got a material part that decomposes in the grave, and you've got an immaterial part, and it goes to God. And see, there's a connection between the fact that the immaterial part is called ruach, meaning breath or wind, and the fact that it's related to the neshama, the breath of God. That that's, they, they work together. They are parallel and correlated concepts. So you have two processes, a physical process, which generates physical life, and a non-material or immaterial process that generates the uh, soul life. Now, another thing, just so we don't get too confused here. Uh, anybody confused? Okay. There are three parts to the human makeup, we say. We go to passages, First Thessalonians chapter 3, Hebrews 4.12, the body, where there's a distinction between soul and spirit. Body's made of body, soul, and spirit. But these words for for soul and for spirit are not always used in that technical sense. Sometimes they're used interchangeably, and they both can refer, either one can refer to the immaterial part of man. I've talked about the spirit of Pharaoh, the Ruach of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Well, he's not saved, but he has this immaterial part. So the Ruach of man is just a term that's used in a, back to Ecclesiastes, just a term, a, a generic term, non-technical term for the immaterial part of man. It doesn't always refer to what we would refer in other contexts to the human spirit, meaning that part of man's immaterial nature that is he receives at regeneration. That the natural man, the soulish man of 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Jude, I think it's Jude 9, do not have, something like that, Jude, I can't remember the passage right now, do not The natural man, the soulish man, does not have that element. So the term spirit is also applied in a technical sense to that element that was lost in spiritual death and gained in regeneration. But here it's a non-technical use of that word. Context dictates. Okay, Isaiah 2.22 is another passage that emphasizes the importance of breath. Sever yourselves... From such a man, God says, whose breath is in his nostrils. So it's an emphasis on breathing as crucial to the presence of soul life. Isaiah 42.5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens. And let me see here. Somebody's asked me a question about this the other day. When you have the uppercase Lord, that is, indicates that the Hebrew behind it is Yahweh, the sacred tetragrammaton. When you have a lowercase, like G-O-D, that's Elohim. Sometimes you'll have G-O-D in uppercase, and Lord will be in lowercase, and that would mean that God is the term that they're using to translate Yahweh, and lowercase Lord would be Adonai. So sometimes you have Yahweh Adonai, and so they would translate that Lord God. That's just a typical style feature of most Bibles. That says God the Lord, 
who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who what? Who gives breath. See, this is ongoing action. It's not who gave breath at the beginning, got the process going with Adam, and it just continues. He gives breath to the people on it, not to the singular person, Adam, and got the process started, which is what the traditionists would want to argue, but he continues to give breath to the people on it and spirit ruach to those who walk on it. So here you see where ruach is parallel to neshama, to breath. God is the one who is pictured here as being directly or immediately involved in the process of bestowing the soul. Isaiah 57, 16. For I will not contend forever, God says, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit ruach would fail before me. He's talking about if if he were really angry, the spirit of man would fail. And the souls which I have made, and see that it's a bad translation, it's not soul there, it's neshama, the breaths which I have made. So again we see this parallel between spirit and Neshema, Ruach and Neshema. So I've just gone through these passages to show that there's numerous passages after the creation that continue to talk about God imparting the souls through his breath. That breath is crucial to understanding the presence of life and the presence of soul life. Now, the next thing I want to look at as we go through this has to do with understanding when God imparts the soul and you have a complete full human being. And once again, we're going to deal with the parameters of life and that the Bible presents these parameters from birth to death, not from conception to death. So we're just going to uh, ratchet our argument up a little step and we're going to get into a key verse in Psalm 22, 9, and 10. And Psalm, Psalm, did I say Revelation? I meant Psalm. Psalm 22, 9, and 10. Yet you are he, speaking to God, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Yet upon you I was cast from birth, and that is the word me rechem. Rechem is a word for uh, for the inner parts. Uh, uh, sometimes rechem is a source of compassion. You have been my God from my mother's womb, me betten. So those are the two words. We're going to see them in synonymous parallelism numerous times. Rechem and betten, the womb, the... the um, the womb, but both of them. You see, me reckon, me is that Hebrew preposition men. It drops the N when it comes before consonant. And you see how New American Standard translates it from birth. See, they understand it. You put it in a passage that's become a, at the core of the debate over this, they'll, they'll translate it from the womb. But, you, but when you go to Non-central passages, all of a sudden they recognize that, oh, we, this is from birth. Okay, I'm just arguing for consistency here. So, Mirechem and Mibetan both have that idea of from birth. 
So from the womb doesn't mean in the womb. It means from the time uh, the child comes out of the womb. You see this also in Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. That is, they're fallen from the womb. Mirechem. Those who speak lies, it's synonymous parallelism to the wicked, go astray in synonymous parallelism to estranged, go astray from birth, mebetan. So you see, mebetan and mirechem are synonymous terms, both indicating the concept of from birth, not from conception. Isaiah uh, 46, uh, verse 3. There's another uh, key passage. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth. Born meaning carried by me from birth. See, not from conception. It's talking about the nation. When was the nation conceived? See, it doesn't fit a parallel. He talks about birth, when it began. That's the beginning of the nation. It's not conception. It's birth. So I've carried you from birth, and you've been lifted up. From the womb, so those terms are used uh, synonymously there. Uh, Mebetan for first, and then mirechem in the second usage. Job again, Job one twenty one. Naked I came from naked I came from birth, or naked I was from birth from my mother's womb. Uh, Mebetan. Uh, Job three eleven. Job now begins to have a pity party after his suffering. He says, "Why did I not die at birth?" Not at conception, but at birth, mirechem. Uh, come forth from the womb and expire. It's post-birth, beginning of life. He says in Job 10:19, I should have been as though I had not been carried from the womb to the tomb, mibetan. So you see, the argument here is that life begins at birth and ends with death. Those are the parameters. You don't have a single place, and I've got one minute to show this. Uh, Isaiah 44.2, that says, the Lord God who made you and formed you from birth, who will help you. You have to be consistent there. Isaiah 44.24, that says, the Lord your Redeemer and the one who formed you from birth. I am the maker of all things. Now you see in the phrase from birth you have a preposition from which in the Hebrew is men, the Greek it's ek, plus a noun. Now, you have a noun, here I have the verb yalad, but you have a noun related to it. I mean, you don't have a noun related to it in Hebrew. You don't. There's no noun. So you can't say in Hebrew from birth, because you have to have a preposition and a noun. You can't have a prepositional phrase from birth because Hebrew has a verb for birth, yalad, but it doesn't have a noun for birth. So you have to use an idiom or a circumlocution to talk about from birth. This is why they use the word either from mirechem or mibetan uh, from the womb because there was no possible way, no vocabulary, no tool to talk about from birth using a noun. didn't exist. But you do have a verb, hara, which is the verb which means to conceive and is used 52 times in the scripture. And you also have a form of this verb, the noun form, which is present in numerous places in the scripture. You can talk about 
from conception. So if there is the vocabulary, there's the tool to talk about from conception, why does the author always use the me bet nor me reckon? Because he's not talking about from conception. He has the vocabulary tools to do it. But he never does. It's never from conception to the tomb. It's always from birth to the tomb. Those are the parameters. And so that helps us understand, I think, something very important about the parameters of life that, you know, I've brought this up in, in discussions and debates with, uh, with other guys, guys who don't agree with this, and they just sort of sit back and they're quiet. Usually we don't come back to this discussion. Uh, and I'm not meaning that in a sense that, you know, they don't do anything, but they've never heard it before. They don't have an answer. Um, I don't know if anybody have heard that it's had an answer. They, they just it, it surprises them. I've never found this in, to be developed in any literature, in any a pro or con, either side of any of this discussion. I've never seen anybody either present it or adequately deal with it. Okay, I think that was one example. Genesis 4.1, now the man had uh, relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived. There's the, the verb, and gave birth to Cain. So you have both conception and birth in that particular verse. So see, these words, these words were all there. So if the Old Testament is making a case that life, the parameters of life are from conception to death, which is what everybody argues in the abortion discussion, why is it that the Bible never, ever, ever sets, the, sets conception as the parameters? It just isn't there. Now, the big question then is, so what, what actual impact does this have on the abortion debate? And we will get there because there is a lot more on both sides of this to cover than we can possibly cover tonight. So we'll come back in the next class. We'll review this again and keep building. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. Help us to understand that there's a lot of information in the scriptures related to these issues that generally not taught, not accepted, not fully developed, but yet we need to be uh, serious students of your word and consistent students of your word to work out the understanding of what your word actually says about the parameters of life. Father, we pray that you'd encourage us always with your faithfulness, that you never leave us or forsake us, and you are always there to sustain us in every situation in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.